Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you had a whale of a week. This week, I chatted with Alexandra Morton about how she is taking on governments and the industry to save wild salmon. She was previously a whale biologist, but now has dedicated her life to salmon. She just released a book called Not On My Watch. You guys should check out her website. That's where you can find it. She also previously published a book called Listening to Whales, which is also a great book as well. So definitely check that out. As far as updates, we are still having our How I Help campaign. So please submit your videos. Um, That will be running through this Saturday. So you have one more day to do it. And then the person with the best video, we will send you a Breaching Extinction t-shirt. So be sure to get that done. And it's been awesome to see all the different ways that you guys are kelping. So go out there and keep kelping. Before we dive into our episode, just a quick message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Blackfin Coffee. Blackfin Coffee is an e-commerce roasting brand based in Seattle, Washington, and I want to tell you about them. I was really inspired by the brand's focus initially to partner with PNW Protectors to lock arms and help save the southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest. For more information, visit them at www.blackfin.coffee. That's blackfin.coffee. For our listeners, Blackfin will be offering 20% off your first purchase with the promo code BREACHEXTINCTION20 at checkout. Again, head over to blackfin.coffee and redeem your promo code today. So tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your current role, and how you got to where you are right now. So I'm a person who decided uh, at a very young age that I was going to study communication in a non-human. And uh, by process of elimination, I picked Orca. Mm -hmm. And I I started with two whales in captivity in Los Angeles, but after a few years realized just how terrible that situation was for them and the impact it was having on them. And so I decided to try to find their actual family up here in British Columbia because I'd spent several years learning the calls of these whales in captivity, and I thought it would be really fabulous to take that knowledge into the wild and so I ended up finding their family. Uh, they're the A5 pod, the, the female mm-hmm. family. The male family disappeared after capture. And the, the northern residents led me to a place called Echo Bay in 1984. Mm-hmm. And so I, I decided to make that the place that I was going to study whales. The problem was that salmon farms moved in and, and basically just, changed everything mm-hmm. and so I shifted from studying whales to basically fighting for their lives and and the lives of the salmon that sounds very intense so when you say everything changed when the fish farms came in can you paint a picture of what that change looked like for us so 
on the biological point of view, uh, the wild salmon began to vanish, beginning with the overwintering Chinook salmon, which the guys all called winter springs because they're spring salmon mm-hmm. that were here in the winter. And they were really the preferred prey for the northern residents. They're year-round salmon. They're very oily. And so, you know, it gives them the high calories that they need. Mm-hmm. And then the farms in 1995 began to use acoustic harassment devices to try to repel the seals. And, I mean, in some ways, it was the farmers trying to get around shooting the seals. But what happened is the the whales I was working with came in one by one, the different resident pods, and they just never came back. I mean, literally, they just, one of them uh, just returned um, in was it in January this year? I mean, it's just incredible that it's from 1995 till January of 2021, they stayed away. Uh, we also began to get toxic algae blooms, the red heterosigma and the orange noctiluca. We had escaped Atlantics in the creeks, and the community fell apart. Um, the government decided they were only going to give the foreshore permits to aquaculture and tourism and logging. And in the stroke of a pen, uh, outlawed basically my whole community because we were all living in float houses. It's a you know, completely off-grid, remote community, but, but very happy. And you know, everybody was as employed as they wanted to be. It was, we were a thriving little community of you know, maybe 200 people when I first arrived and had been there for 100 years. So the First Nations lost a key component of their diet as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the bears are starving. Mm-hmm. And the grizzly bears began to migrate out of the area. And now they're in places they never were before, all over Vancouver Island and uh, small islands and having more interactions with humans. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean when I say everything changed. Wow. So it sounds like it wasn't just, you know, biological. It was cultural as well. Um, cultural, social, economic, bio- biological, yeah, and yeah. the quality of the water. It, it, it did, you know, I had no idea how important salmon were to everything. I didn't even really notice them at first. I just was watching mm-hmm. the whales. Uh, but now I see them as this remarkable, well, they're, you know, to put it kind of bluntly, they're like a power cord, so they connect the energy of the sun hitting the open ocean, mm-hmm. causing those uh, zooplankton blooms, which fish feed on, and then the salmon feed on those fish. And then they carry all that energy back everywhere mm-hmm. they go, they're feeding species, and then they go up the rivers, they die, and then all those nutrients they brought from the ocean pour down over the watershed, growing the trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So these guys are vital, and it's important we get them back. Um, So I know you're doing a lot of work to help recover the salmon. Can you tell us about what you're doing to recover the salmon and even what we can be doing to help support that? So my view is the salmon have got it handled themselves. They don't need a hatchery. They really don't need us handling them. They got that. What they do need is for us to remove the major roadblocks. And here in British Columbia, that is salmon farms. I've done, uh, well, I've done 21 years of just research on the juveniles going out past the farms. I've published in major journals. I turned my home in Echo Bay into a research station. It's called Salmon Coast Field Station. 
and the researchers that have used it have published even far more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite certain that these farms are a major problem. So removing them is it's going to be very interesting to, to see how the salmon respond. Um, some of the First Nations have begun that process, which is really incredible, particularly the place where I live and work, and that's the Broughton Archipelago. They've started removing those, and the little salmon that went to sea last year for the first time looked incredible. They were just fat and sassy and silvery and unscarred. Uh, they didn't have sea lice stuck all over them. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping we're going to see a little spike in them returning. The problem is, of course, they got so low mm-hmm. that uh, you never know if something can bounce back from that. But in terms of what people can do, uh, so Washington State has been very proactive in this and got rid of the salmon farms first. Mm-hmm. although now they're trying to switch to steelhead farms, which really is no better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would support your local government that are doing this. Um, mm-hmm. But also, just don't buy the farm salmon. So many right. people think, and you, when, if you buy farm salmon, that you are, you are protecting wild salmon. That's just not true. Um, mm-hmm. The United States still has a very viable fishery up in Alaska, Mm-hmm. And that's the only place, really, that Pacific salmon uh, on this continent are being caught anymore because British Columbia doesn't have a really a wild salmon fishery anymore. It's been destroyed. And so when you purchase wild salmon, you are actually feeding an economy that wants these fish. Mm-hmm. And I know it's counterintuitive, but, but it is important that uh, government cares about these fish because they really don't, they don't tally up the benefits of things that we don't pay money for, like right. oxygen and rainfall and tree growth. But mm-hmm. the salmon do all of that. And so yeah, I, did, I gave a TEDx in Seattle in 2019. Unbelievably, I was in a room with 3,000 people, which I just can't believe I, I, that that happened. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I, I talked about this remarkable science that is coming on uh, strong, and it reads the immune system of fish. And so what that does is it basically allows the fish to talk to us. If you check in with their immune system as they travel, the fish will say, oh, it's too warm here, or oh, I'm starving here, or oh my gosh, I've got a virus in my cells. Um, or another place, they might say, I'm perfectly happy. And mm-hmm. If we do that, it gives not only an indicator of where we need to get out of the way of these fish, but it also gives an indicator of our behavior and how we Mm -hmm. are affecting our environment. And I feel that if we want to thrive, one of the most important things to do is find a teacher that really knows how to thrive, (laughs) and that would be salmon. So uh, there's a remarkable event that happened in December, uh, seven First Nations in the Campbell River area. So this is the most narrow migration route for the Fraser River salmon, Mm -hmm. which are very important to the southern residents, particularly the Chinook from the Fraser River. And these nations wanted the farms out, and incredibly, our Minister of Fisheries agreed with them. And so 19 salmon farms have been told they can't put any more fish in. Of course, that's amazing. They're going to court starting tomorrow. But... What it does mean is that this spring, and hopefully forever, there will be no, uh, basically these farms are like disease factories. The problem with them is they, they concentrate 
fish, and then it concentrates viruses and bacteria and parasites. And because they're just net pens, it all is released into the water. And the wild fish just simply weren't built to take this. Right. But this year, they've been removed. And, you know, if anyone wanted to write to the Canadian Minister of Fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, she did a very brave and astonishing thing in saying, get those farms out. And while, you know, in the Washington state, you're not constituents, but this country is very important to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you do affects us and what we do affects you. And so I think it would be, a, might be an interesting gesture if people wanted to do that. So I'm very hopeful that the fish you go to see the spring will survive and come mm-hmm. back and, I follow the news about the southern residents, and I hope those those babies survive. And particularly, you've got a little female there, and so there's some hope, isn't there? I think so too. I definitely think there's some hope. It does seem like doom and gloom a lot, but I mean, we saw that victory that you guys have with the fish farms, which is a victory for the southern residents. Like you said, we all impact each other. So, you know, when one person wins, we all win, um, or one group, I guess. But you know, I think that we are hopeful um, in that, and I'm excited for that. Um, I know that you have worked closely with the Northern residents, and um, I was wondering if there are any experiences that you care to share, things that you find remarkable about that particular um, ecotype. Well, I I worked, I followed around the Northern residents and also the transients or the big whales that eat mammals, and um, I much prefer to follow around the, the fish eaters. Um, first of all, they're more vocal and, mm-hmm. um, you know, their sounds are remarkable, as are the southern residents. And I guess the greatest lesson that they had to offer was that family is everything to them. You know, when mm-hmm. you think about it, there's no, there's no nest they can crawl into. There's no cave. There's, they always have to come back to that, you know, super dynamic interface between the water and the air. Mm-hmm. And so their family is their only home. And they mm-hmm. made it very clear that, you know, I'd watch moms go around a corner and uh, get out of earshot of her youngster and just come roaring back until the two of them were in acoustic contact again. And, and then on they went. They didn't even need to reunite. They just needed mm-hmm. to hear each other. I think... I think everyone who has studied orca has had remarkable experiences with them and, and things that you just can't explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to remain open to everything you experience with them, even if you can't explain it. Um, you know, there was an incident where I got thoroughly lost in the fog following them when I was very, very new to this area and, didn't have a compass and didn't even have a radio in the boat. And I could feel panic actually, you know, rising up my legs and into my body and I was terrified. And and at that point, on my hydrophone, I could hear a cruise ship propeller come up through Blackney Pass where I was sitting at the top of Blackney Pass. Mm-hmm. And I, I just had no, I had no idea which way to go. And, and I just kept thinking that, fog was going to split into this huge bow of this ship towering over me. And then uh, the whales popped up and it was the A5. Uh, They came up right alongside of the boat and I felt this enormous sense of relief. 
this was before I had ever seen them bow ride on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I felt that I was safe with them. And uh, and then my next thought was, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to carry on. They're going to lose me in the fog. But anyway, I, I turned on the engine and I started to follow them. And for the next 25 minutes or so, they came so close to me, I kept clicking into neutral because I was afraid it was going to hit them. They were I was in a little 12 and a half foot Zodiac. So I was looking over the side and they were like right there. Oh my gosh! And um, and then oops! Suddenly I could see a little bit of the islands, and then I burst out of the fog, and it was just you know gorgeous, sunny evening. And so I zoomed ahead and threw out the hydrophones and waited for the whales to come by, and they never did. And so my mind was just like, okay, they were going one direction, then I panicked. They got around me, they stayed mm-hmm. with me. They went the opposite direction for 25 minutes. And then they turned around, apparently went back the same direction they were going. And I just kept running that through my brain again and again and again. Like, how was that even possible? Mm-hmm. What, what happened here? But I had to believe at that point, you know, the stories of dolphins pushing sailors to shore. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized, you know, there was there's quite a few experiences like that. And if I tell anybody else that studies orca, they're like, oh, yeah, no. This happened to me and, you know, something similar and extraordinary. And so I learned to just compartmentalize it, just not destroy it, not try to explain it, and also not forget it. Uh, so I think it's very important with these these whales to, and for all animals, is just to never really wall off what you think is possible and what isn't possible because we just don't know. <laughs> They're running around with a huge brain Mm-hmm. While they're holding their breath, and brains yeah. take a lot of oxygen to run, so <laughs> this is a very expensive organ for uh, an animal that holds its breath, and uh, they uh, they wouldn't have it if they weren't using it. Absolutely, no, I totally agree with you on that. I think that sometimes with science, we're we're limited to discrediting things if we can't explain them, and there's so much that we can't explain that doesn't mean it's not real or that it didn't happen, you know. Um, but that's, you know, that's interesting that you bring that up and, and that you have those experiences. Yeah, the orcas are, are very remarkable. I think there's so many other species out there like that, too. Um, yeah. Have you had any sort of encounters with salmon? I'm sure the salmon were not ever protecting you from the fog, but any, um, you know, particularly memorable experiences with salmon? Oh, well, I, you know... So so many experiences. I mean, obviously, it's incredible to walk into the watersheds where they're spawning and, and see all of that. But I also uh, would spend hours just lying on the roof of my speedboat in small bays and watching them feed and, and just be little fish. So they're, they're, they're adorable. They, like, coil themselves into a little S, and then they spring forward, and I take it they're chasing some sort of speedy little zooplankton. Um I was one time I was doing that and I was sitting in this beautiful bay in Tribune Channel and there were maybe hundreds of thousands of them. I don't know. There was, they were just everywhere wriggling and suddenly Mm -hmm. they decided it was time to carry on the migration and they all just filed out of the bay and (laughs) I was left there alone. It was, um, it was really, you know, you're like, okay, what happened? How did they all know to do that? I guess they ran out of food and the first one left and the rest, I don't know. Um, and uh, last 
spring was the first year that the First Nations had removed the fish farms, like the worst ones, the ones where the salmon were the littlest. And when the salmon Mm -hmm. are little and lights get on them, they have the most damage. And so I began the season uh, going up there, and it was just terrible. There was only like 10 or 20 in a school rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, a complete river of fish. And then suddenly, like three weeks in, there were a lot of fish. There were thousands. And uh, I know what the enumeration numbers were. Very, very few went into the rivers. And I don't know where they came from. And I I called up one of the uh, local chiefs that I talked to quite a bit. And I said, does salmon ever commit miracles? And he's like, oh, yeah, all the time. So. I don't know where all these fish came from. I hope they come back. Um, it, it, you do have to, you do have to realize that you know, no matter how well you get to know something and how many decades you follow it and measure it and count it and you know take it apart, put it back together, you really don't know. There's there's still more. There's more mystery. There's more going on than we can ever grasp, and that is the beauty of it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the constant learning and always being receptive to something new with these creatures. Absolutely. I think that's really beautiful. And I, you know, totally agree with you. We can know so much about something, but, you know, still truly never know, um, like, even more than we think that we do. You know, these animals are so complex. And I think that makes them all the more worth fighting for and preserving. Um, I'm curious, you had mentioned that there was a pod that was gone for you know, several decades and then returned, what do you think was the reason why? Do you think it had to do with the fish farms or the lack of boats because of COVID? Um, what would you attribute this to? I, I attribute it to the fish farms. The fish farms? Um, because, because what happened was the sound was so loud, it was 198 decibels, which is as loud as a, as a jet engine at takeoff. And uh, the the way it worked on seals was to cause pain in their ears. And, you know, pain is, is the deafening process. During that time, myself and my neighbors frequently almost hit seals because they just, they did not seem to know we were there. Even though we, our boats are extremely loud, mm-hmm. they would just pop up right in front of us. They had no idea. So I think they had been deafened by these acoustic harassment devices. And, you know, for whales, for the orca who see with sound, it would have been like us going into a room with a bunch of needles coming right out our eyes. That's mm-hmm. pretty well the experience they had. And so, of course, they didn't want to come back for that. <laughs> and, right. and orca are very cautious animals. They're very, you know, they're, they're very, um, and when I say animals, I, I count us on that list as well. We are also animals. Yeah. Um, and so they're very, very cautious. And, of course, they used the archipelago in very specific ways. They liked mm-hmm. to come at the beginning of the ebb tide. They knew the runs of salmon. They came for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very precise about it, and they just didn't want to come in there anymore. And I don't. I think they could taste the farms. So when these ones closed on the migration route that the salmon use and that the whales use, I think maybe they decided to give it a go. Um, and it was thrilling. It was it was absolutely thrilling to me because I was so worried that they had forgotten how to use that 
place because the matriarchs who are setting the course and are out mm-hmm. ahead, those had died in the ensuing years since 1995. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I wonder if any of the youngsters were paying attention as to where they were going. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just had this terrible feeling that this knowledge might be trapped in a human brain. Um, but And so when they went in Fife Sound, which was their main door, there's lots of ways into that archipelago, but the Orca always liked Fife Sound. That was their route. Mm-hmm. When they when they did that, I didn't see it, but my, a friend of mine, um, Jared Towers, who was out there, texted me. I, I broke down and cried. It mm-hmm. was it was just something right had gone on, something a healing and a, a going back to something that was, belonged there. I was absolutely thrilled. That's truly amazing. Have they stuck around, or did they just come in the one time? They they did stick around for a period of about two weeks. Um, in the winter, you know, they mm-hmm. don't really stay here. They have to circulate to a large area. But I take it they had a good time and must have found something to eat because they did mm-hmm. go back and uh, they stuck around in the general area. We have a fabulous network here, which I'm sure you have as well, where we ID the whales and um, there's listening stations. And so we do keep track of them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we'll see what happens this summer when they when they really come back, uh, whether they go back to their um, more frequent entry. Because there's this larger Johnson Straits, Robson Bay, Blackfish Sound, all out front of the archipelago where they've always come. They never stopped coming here, but mm-hmm. they did stop going into the islands where the uh, where the farms are. Interesting. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that would be amazing if they did come back and stick around. And that's, you know, it's amazing that you talk about that healing and that even though after, you know, the matriarchs and the ones that would have told them about that, you know, or told them in like, you know, loose kind of like layman terms, I guess, um, that they still figured that out and they still kind of knew that that was home. That's amazing. Um, it sounds like it's only going to go up from here. Are your salmon endangered as well because I know the ones that we have in Washington are oh yeah so uh the biggest river in the Broughton is down to one tenth of one percent uh the Fraser River sockeye uh only 27 of them came back to one of the spawning grounds is the lowest that anybody's ever heard of oh my gosh but there's other areas where they're doing quite well. Like on the west side of Vancouver Island, the sockeye came back uh, one-third over the forecast, and there's no mm-hmm. salmon farms in that particular area. Mm-hmm. So um, as these farms are removed, the problem is nobody really believed how bad they were, except yeah. myself and a few other scientists, because we were really on it. We were mm-hmm. you know, watching the fish, catching the fish, studying the fish, testing them for viruses, Counting the sea lice, sea lice are really easy to study because they change their body shape every few days for the first 30 days so you can tell where they got on and they're clearly getting on at the farm. But the problem is we had a government agency that just refused, had no receptors for this information. Policy was, you're going to have salmon farms, like it or love it, you know, you're stuck with them. But Mm. that seems to be breaking down because... There's a lot of brave scientists who are basically risking their careers by going honest with this and the spread of 
Well, for example, there's this disease called mouth rot. It's caused mm-hmm. by a bacteria called Tenacibaculum, and it's in these farms. It's in virtually all of these farms. And recent research finds out that it might be reducing the juvenile sockeye migration by 87.9%. And that's on top of the sea lice that we already oh know are hurting them. And the Piscine ortho virus, which appears to be from Norway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it causes the red blood cells of Chinook salmon to rupture on mass. So these are these are things that are not obvious to see unless you make your whole life about it and you're tracking it. And um, so um, here, I'm not sure what the rules are in the United States, but here the First Nation governments are actually recognized federal level governments. They have to go to court to reestablish this again and again and again, which is ridiculous. But anyway, they do. And as they are gaining more rights, they are such local governments, and they know how important these fish are. They don't worry about international trade and other things that the non-Indigenous governments are weighted down with. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I work for a number of First Nations now. Some of them pay me, some of them don't. I really don't. I mean, obviously, I want to get paid so I can survive, but they are so, it's such a relief to uh, provide information for a government that actually wants the fish. So for me, it's uh, it's been a natural fit. Um, we also, I mean, what really broke this was we, uh, myself and, and First Nation members, occupied salmon farms for 280 days in the Broughton Archipelago in the winter of 2017-2018. And that's that's why I wrote the book, because that was such a remarkable thing. Every, everything existed before that. Everybody knew the salmon were going down. The farms were probably a problem. But then suddenly, two people stepped on the farm and didn't leave, and, and that broke the dam. And next mm-hmm. thing you know, the government comes to the table and it's all changing. It's it's terribly late in the game, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said earlier with the Southern residents, there are hope and like, you know, you said that there was a healing that had happened there as well. And so I think it's possible, you know, if, if we're doing the right things and they're able to be this resilient to the point, you know, that they have been the way that they've been treated for the last, I don't know, 100 years, you know, or 200 years with like, you know, colonialism coming in and that being an entire thing, I think that they can make it. That's, you know, that's pretty remarkable. And and I think it's interesting, too, that you had mentioned that um, there were many scientists who are, in a sense, risking their careers. Um, And I'm curious to hear more about that just because, you know, my perception is that scientists, it's their job to find the truth. So why why would telling the truth put them at risk? Oh, because the only people paying fishery scientists are the government and the salmon farming industry. There's very few jobs in fisheries for, like, for fisheries biologists uh, with anybody else. There, there are with the First Nations, and so there's a few there. But you know, here you 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 have an interest in fish, and you you go to university, and you have student debt, and you get this job, and you're like, oh. Okay, well, I had to had to kind of ignore that, and I had to ignore that, and so I don't think it's a conscious decision. I think it just creeps in, and then there's yeah. group mentality, and you get into a group of scientists, and they're just like, oh yeah, that Morton woman, and and oh 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 that person, and and oh yeah that. There's this 
you know, if you're in a group where you can say, no, that is not real, <laughs> this is not happening, you can talk yourself into it. I mean, humans have talked them into cells into, you know, the most horrific things that we do as a group. We can also talk ourselves into wonderful things. Um, yeah. So one of the joys in my life, and I didn't expect this to happen at all, but was when I opened my home to uh, young scientists, particularly those that were in um, that were graduate students, and they went on to get their PhDs, they went on to become tenured professors or to take job in government uh, or with First Nations. There is this now sort of tribe of fishery scientists in British Columbia who grew up in you know in their in their professional life speaking the truth and you know sitting around the table at my field station trying to figure things out and when in, for a short period of time the salmon farms got the lice under control and and the wild salmon were looking much better we published on that too unfortunately uh that didn't last because the sea lice became resistant to drugs but um it's wonderful to you know, to have this this group of incredibly brilliant, and many of them are mathematical modelers, which, oh my gosh, when they first came on the scene, I was like, yeah, no, there's no way you guys can, <laughs> you can model the wild, wet world. There's just too many variables. But as I began working with them, I'd be like, okay, no, actually, you guys got that. I'm seeing the same thing. And they were wonderful. They would check with me, like, do you think this is happening? This is what the models are saying. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty well what's happening. Uh, of course, that's just my view. Not that I'm any, uh, you know, expert, but I'm not a modeler. I'm just observing. Mm-hmm. So these, this, this potential, so if you were to harness their ability to, to deal with massive databases, my vision is to start a department of wild salmon where everybody counts the salmon the same way takes the same environmental measurements, whether it's temperature, pH, salinity, all of these things, rainfall. And then this genomic profiling, as it's called, where you read the immune system of the fish and they are telling you in enormous detail what is going on with them. Mm-hmm. Well, then you can look at this whole thing and go, oh, we just need to you know, release water on this dam right now and cool this river at this time period and suddenly you know millions more salmon will survive or we need to deal with this pollution pipe right here right here it's impacting 87 percent of this run well i think if that was the case and you went back to the municipal government where that pipe was was you know laid you could probably get things changed but if you say oh let's save the salmon and it's this nebulous vague thing it's it's very hard to get anybody to do anything. But I think it, with this type of precision, we could be highly strategic. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you have this level of precision, what do you think it's going to take to get the salmon back to their original numbers or at least on track to head that way? Well, unfortunately, I don't have that science because it's under lock and key in government right uh, now, but I am trying to break okay. it free. Um, but, but what is required is to listen to the salmon and figure out what they need. So in the United States, it might be removing dams. Uh, definitely there's some pollution issues and some drug issues in the water. In British Columbia, it is salmon farms and habitat destruction due to logging. Um, people 
still put fishing on the list, but we really don't have commercial fisheries on salmon anymore. I don't know if people realize that that, that just, just ended. Yeah. So, and the salmon, if it was just the fishing, the salmon would have come back, right. um, which they haven't. So I think it's incredibly important that we don't do hatcheries. These fish, uh, they know how to do this. They, they got the spawning thing down. They don't need our help. And, if I have a moment to just tell you, you know, why I believe that, if you look at salmon when they come in to spawn, they're coming into a very hostile environment. It's a, it's fresh water. It's uphill. There's predators everywhere. It's shallow. It must be terrifying for them. But and they don't feed. They cannot eat in the river when they're coming back to spawn. And they're growing eggs and they're growing gonads, and yet they dress up. They grow humps and teeth and stripes, and they turn these phenomenal colors from red to purple. Well, that's because the males are advertising. And they're saying to the females, hey, baby, I went out into the Pacific Gyre, and I came back with all this extra energy. And the female's like, yeah, no, 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 you. And that choice is what makes salmon survive. That choice is how they're going to survive climate change as much as is possible. If you travel the Fraser River and you look at sockeye salmon, when you go to the Adams River versus, say, um, the Stewart River up in the, in the head of the river, they look like entirely different fish. Mm-hmm. Or the Chilco fish are like these streamlined bullets and the Adams are these huge, deep-bodied fish. It's because the female... And the males have worked this thing out. And if that river changes, the female's choice will change her babies to survive as much as is possible in that river. So we cannot take that away from them. Um, might as well cut their tails off. Yeah. So no hatcheries. Read the fish and listen to them. And we know where we've destroyed habitat. We need the estuaries where fish raise. We need all the things that they require and the, and the beautiful thing is, the more you serve the fish, the more you serve our children. Uh, we need the forest to make oxygen. You know, we need our water to be clean. We need the forest to create rain. We need all the same things that salmon need. So it's mm-hmm. really not about save the whales or save the salmon. It's, it's about save life on Earth, of which we are one of the living creatures here. So it's... Uh, it's good for us <laughs> to save the salmon. Matter of fact, I don't think we're going to survive if we don't behave and learn how to accommodate the, the the animals that are sharing the space with us. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think at this, you know, if at this rate, if humans continue in the way that they do, we're going to destroy ourselves and then take so many other species down with us, which is not okay. And I think that you know, we're lucky enough to get to share this awesome planet with so many amazing other animals and other species out there. So it's absolutely worth taking care of. Um, but that's, you know, that's incredible that the salmon do so much. And, you know, I came onto this as like an orca person and I'm slowly turning into, well, not slowly turning into a salmon person, but definitely I'm a salmon person now because of how incredible yeah, these animals are. Yeah. You can't. You can't love the orcas without loving the salmon. You have to do both. It's um, I'm I'm really I'm really glad to hear that. And it's interesting. Salmon also have us under a spell. 
you know, the number of people who will go to rescue salmon or, you know, and unfortunately a lot of times it's in hatcheries, but also stream cleaning or if a river dries up and there's stranded little salmon, people will show up in droves to help them. There is a relationship there already. We love them. We respect them. We're amazed by them. And, uh, and so I think it's important to you know, nurture that in people and, and make that the normal thing. Of course you would go to do that. You know, it's, it's part of keeping our planet alive. And, you know, I, I tell people, some people will say to me, you know, I don't eat salmon, which is fine, but that is not a solution because mm-hmm. the salmon are feeding the trees that make the oxygen we breathe. So, and also now we're pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere that we desperately need. You can measure the run size of salmon with the growth rings of the trees in the watershed. And because nitrogen in the ocean is different than nitrogen on land, when you find this nitrogen 15, oh, you know that came from the ocean. Even if it's up in the alpine, that came from a salmon that an eagle picked up you know, and digested and had some droppings up there, and then a mountain goat might eat it. Is it the distribution of the wealth of energy from mm-hmm. this fish? I tell people, you know, if we kill off salmon, you might as well just yard the power cords out of your house. Everything is going to go dim. It sounds like it. That's, yeah. I mean, if it's, if people can't, you know, save them because that they love them, which they should because they're amazing, then, you know, be selfish and save them so that you can live. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we, like, we have to, we don't have a choice at this point. Um, and no, and, and it, it, it feels good. It feels right. It mm-hmm. feels really good. And, you know, I'm a believer in activism at this point, and it's so much better to be engaged in honorable, powerful activism rather than sitting there as the victim. It, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental shift in your entire chemistry. And um, it just feels so good to do something yeah. to help another living creature on this planet, even if you don't understand the web of life, which I think more and more people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it feels good. Yeah, and I I completely agree with you, and I I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember when I first started to learn about the orcas and salmon, and and at least in Washington, we talk a lot about the Lower Snake River dams. And yeah. I was working as a naturalist in the whale watching industry, and it, everyone that I talked to was like, "The dams aren't going down. They're not going down." And I was like, "Not like in my head, I was like, <laughs> not with that attitude. They're not, you know." And so I was like, what am I going to do about it? I need to learn. I need to know more and jump into it. And so I know what you mean where it's like, a, you know, there is something in your chemistry that changes. And I know what you mean when you yeah. talk about the, the bravery that it takes for scientists or other people to step out and say something. Because I've even, I still work in whale watching and I've had to speak out in my industry about how we really should not be watching the southern residents. Like we really need to let them go and, um, you know, has that's been difficult but at the end of the day if we don't have the whales and the salmon what's the point you know i know you guys have a wonderful network down there um my my son lives on the uh edge of uh tacoma lives in tacoma and can see the whales and they're on the links where they 
here. And so there's this amazing community of people that we have here as well who are following the whales without ever being in the water with them. And That's amazing. You know, people have said to me, well, how are, how are people going to see whales? Well, I'm sorry. It's not a birthright that you do see whales. You put yourself in there. You put their, yourself in their territory and wait for them. And, and yes. I know not everybody has that time, and that's unfortunate. But it is not a right. It's just like it's not a right that everybody can eat salmon. Um, we have to learn to control ourselves. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I've got grandchildren now, and, and, you know, the phrase going postal. Well, my phrase is I'm going grandma. That's enough. There's been a lot yeah. of nonsense here. I don't care who did it. But you guys are going to have to step away from the salmon now and go yeah. do something else. Um, because I just, yeah, everybody can see what you're doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's not pretend anymore. So Yeah. Uh, and that pretending is so dangerous. And that's, you know, I think people like you and like you remind me a lot of Lori Marina and, nor, sorry, Lori Marino and Deborah Giles, who they're both scientists that are also activists at the same time. And I'm so inspired yeah. by strong women like you three because you pave the way and in a way give me and other people in the community permission to speak out and stay aligned with the truth and like know that it's right even when it's difficult. Um, so I definitely like appreciate the way that you've modeled it for the rest of us because it just makes it that much easier for us to try to do the same thing that you're doing. I completely understand because um, Jane Goodall did that for me. When when I was growing up, I thought I would have to stop my interest in animals because I didn't know of any adults that were interested in animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she showed up on the cover of National Geographic, and, and it was just like time stopped for me. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so hey, those role models are so important. Absolutely. And I'm curious, in what ways can we support scientists and people who are speaking out? Because it is hard, like it's so hard for people to put their jobs on the line. And in what ways can we continue to strive for truth and get past all these lies that we've told ourselves? Well, you have a remarkable organization down there, the Wild Fish Conservancy, who are Mm -hmm. using science and the courts to protect salmon, and they were the first ones who taught me about uh, the problem with hatcheries. They're reinventing how fish could be caught in a sustainable way. They're fighting the fish farms. Um, So I would talk to them um, about what support they need. And also, you know, politicians, it's just, we think that you can elect them and walk away and then go check on them in four years and see if you want them back. But It doesn't really work. And when a politician does a brave thing, they really need you to show up. Um, And the other thing I tell people when they say, what can I do? If somebody organizes a demonstration on something you believe in, don't say, oh, I can't make it. If you Mm -hmm. can't make it, buy a bus ticket for somebody else or, you know, donate some money or do something because it is so as I told people with this fish farm thing, you know, if enough people showed up, we could stop it. We could have stopped it 10 years ago. But is mm-hmm. that a million people or 100,000 people or is it 1,000 people? You don't know. But, but the truth of it is, if it was enough people, it would stop. And, you know, people say to me, oh, I'm just an average person. <laughs> it's like, 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't have any superpowers. But That's exactly but, how I feel too. People underestimate their power so much. And and if we recognize how powerful we were, I think we could get so much more done. It's true. And, and one of the statements I, that really bothers me is when somebody says, well, I'm behind you. I'm like, yeah, well, that's not going to work. You're going to have to be beside me because nobody can yeah. see you if you're behind me. And and so it's, um, and, and you know, working with allies is so important, even if they, even if they're rude to you or unkind to you. But if, if, if you're going in the same direction, you just got to let a lot of stuff slide. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. not everything, but don't be picky right. about your allies. If they, yeah. if they truly have, if their hearts are in it and they're strong, well, you know, I see my allies, we're like a herd of wild horses and yeah, we kick each other and we get bitten and we get pushed, but we're all running in the same direction hard. Yeah. And, and there's a, the, the, the power of diversity is so important. Uh, I don't like umbrella organizations because if you do that, <laughs> you've got one leader and they just catch that one and everybody follows. And yeah, no, I've done that. It doesn't work. Uh, so it, none of it's easy. But, you know, this last year has taught all of us that, first of all, we're resilient and yeah. we can really change. People really didn't realize they could change yeah. this much. And so we know that about ourselves now, and I think that's powerful. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And and I think we, too, also, we learned a lot with the planet, and we underestimated our impact and saw how quickly – you know, the smog in L.A. went away and different, you know, other parts of the environment, the way that they were impacted yeah. by COVID. And, you know, it goes to show, you know, that we, like, we can do it and there is still hope. And, like, if we're willing to meet the environment, you know, where it's at, given, you know, even though we've destroyed it up until this point, it will, like, you know, it's going to do its best to come back. And it's very good because that's, you know, in nature's nature, I guess, to come back. Yeah, at a certain point it won't, and that, uh, that is a warning as well. But yeah, but absolutely, because I don't know. Yeah, you could give up, but what's the point of that? <laughs> you might as well try. Um, and uh, and then so these few positive hints that I've got. I mean, they're few, but they're huge. The showing up of those fish, the return of those orca. You read the signs uh, of what the natural world is telling you. Every time you give it an inch it does push back. And so it's really, really important to, you know, some people say, well, I've never done anything. And I do say to those folks, you never know. You might detonate. It might be something that crosses your path. We all know what needs to be done. There's always something that needs to be done in your community, um, in your home, and, and just start doing it and limber that muscle up of not being the victim of being part of the change because, it's as healthy as doing yoga or running or eating properly. It changes your chemistry and it makes you stronger and more resilient and gives you energy. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So for your own health, you know, it's a good thing to take care of the planet. That's amazing. Exactly. exactly. Um, one of the questions that I always ask people on here is what can we learn from the orca? And I want to know what you think we can learn from the orca and salmon. I know you touched on it a little bit, but... Um, I would love to hear you expand on that. Well, 
I, that's a tough one because it's so big, a statement. Um, I learned many things from the ORCA. Um, actually, raising my children was affected by them and, and staying in acoustic contact <laughs> with my mm-hmm. kids. We actually used to use whale calls. Um, and that's so funny. Uh, yeah, because they, you know, I was in the wilderness, so there was woods and stuff like that, and I needed a mm-hmm. call that would, you know, was, was loud. Um, but I guess it's just the sheer gracefulness of their existence and their dedication to family and um if if in everything you do it's it's conscious and careful and graceful and by that mm-hmm. i mean um thinking about the waves that you're making the hurt that you're causing or the disregard that you are you know throwing something out the window of your car or things like that you are that is 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 destroying the the peace of the place around you, the health of it. The mm-hmm. you know when you think of a, an orca, the way it swims, where it causes almost no ripples because the water is passing through the outer layer of their skin. They go through their world without impacting it, without leaving a trace. Mm-hmm. They always move. They don't stay and fish that one group of fish out or pollute it. They just keep moving. And, of course, we can't do that. But if we can learn to lower our impact as they do uh, and go through life with this, this grace and closeness with family, whether, whether it is your biological family or it is your chosen family, mm-hmm. they are still equally important because, you know, how we carry ourselves affects the people around us. Absolutely. I think that's beautiful and that's, you know, we get a lot of the answers of like, you know, they're resilient and they're charismatic and things like that. But that's a new answer, and I like that one. That's excellent. Mm. Um, do you mm. have any final thoughts or anything that you want to share with our listeners before we go? Oh. <laughs> Such a big question. Um, <laughs> I I really just it would encourage everybody to do something good for their peace of the world, for their place, because we are this enormous presence on this planet. And so you really only have to do a little thing for it to connect and and be an enormous tide, a shift. It is so important right now that we do the right thing for the environment, uh, for our communities, you know, stamp out racism, eat properly don't don't <laughs> don't uh <laughs> encourage the 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 feedlots of any kind because that's where all of our pathogens are coming from mm-hmm. um, yeah just just try to make your part of the world a little bit better, and that is a lot because there's a lot of us I think so, and I think that that's beautiful, and that's such a you know good reminder of what we can all do and that we do have the power to you know make the world a better place and and change it for the better. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you being here. I think this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. And just a reminder, if you want to submit your videos, tomorrow is the last day for the How I Kelp campaign. So make sure that you submit those. Go out there, keep kelping. And I hope you guys are left feeling as inspired as I am. As always, go check out our social media pages. Leave us a review on here or check out our Patreon. Hope you guys have a great week. Bye.